Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 33 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. I'm Kareem Farah, co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. And today, our episode is actually different than any episode we've done before. We're doing a new kind of series. It's Innovators in Education. So I am joined today by a very special guest, Dr. Jennifer Charlot, who's a partner at Transcend Education. I'm super, super excited to be chatting with her today. We're going to be talking about some higher level concepts just generally around innovation and education. So Jen, can you just take a moment to share a little bit about yourself and just your journey in education? Sure. Hi, Kareem. Um, I'm so happy to be here. I'm always caught off guard a little bit when people introduce me as doctor, in part because it's a reminder for me. You know, in my day-to-day life, people don't refer to me that way, (laughs) but it's a reminder for me about um, freedom and the freedom that came with this title of doctor. And all the years prior to that, you know, I was in an education system that constantly tried to fix me, right? Saying things like, I want you to speak like this, you know, I'm... Uh, first generation in this country. And so speaking English, you know, didn't come easy to me as a kid. And, you know, I had teachers telling me to assimilate, um, telling me I have too many emotions. That was by far one of my favorites. And getting the doctorate to me was about finally having an opportunity or rather the legitimacy to actually be my full self. So a title that would allow me to integrate my intellect and all the other parts of me. So my spirit, my culture, my emotions, all of it. And so when I think about my work in education thus far, from being a social worker to teaching and coaching leaders, to translating research interventions into classroom practices, designing schools, (laughs) I'm on my second school design right now called RevX. You know, at the base of all of that, fundamentally, my career has been about creating experiences for children that allow them to be fully human, right? Experiences starting from kindergarten so that they don't have to wait until they, quote unquote, become more legitimate or as a doctor so that they can show up in the world as themselves. I absolutely love that story. That is fascinating. And yeah, you know, my parents, interestingly enough, my dad's Egyptian, my mom's Lebanese, so I can actually relate to a lot of that. So they actually immigrated over to the U.S. when they were pregnant with me. Um, So I certainly know that feeling of just kind of not knowing where I fit in the education system and feeling like I'm trying to morph who I am and what I do and what I think with what's around me, but then going home and just having a totally different vibe there and trying to merge those two concepts. And I agree. I think a lot of the reasons why I started the Modern Classrooms Project is because when I was a student, I just didn't really feel like traditional models of teaching and learning and traditional schooling actually fit who I was in my style. Um, and I kind of had to figure out an alternative pathway myself. And I don't think students should have to do that. And, you know, I was privileged enough to have a fair amount of resources growing up, but Most of the students, obviously, we've supported do not. So forcing them to kind of figure out their own way through education, not creating the supports is just not okay. So I certainly relate to that journey. Exactly. 
Tell me a little bit more about Transcend Education, you know, and just for listeners to know, the Modern Classrooms Project has actually worked quite frequently with Transcend Education. We deeply believe in a lot of the principles that they believe in. We've collaborated on some projects here and there. Um, We collaborate with some school partners that are also working with both organizations. So that's part of the reason why I got connected with Transcend myself. So Jen, can you just give like an overview of what Transcend does in the K-12 space? Yeah. So for those listening, Transcend is a national nonprofit, and our goal is to support communities in creating more equitable learning environments for their children. So reimagining what could be and then supporting them in the process of getting there. We serve about 200 schools or 50 different systems, if you want to think about it that way, across 28 states in the country. Um, Another way to think about it is like we serve close to 500,000 students. And when we work with the communities, they ask, we ask questions like, how can they be more equitable? How can we help children and staff feel more human throughout their learning journey? And we do support some out of school programs, right? Learning environment for us is broad. Uh, sometimes that's a full school. Sometimes that's an out of school program. But, you know, that's basically what we do in the K-12 space. I love it. And, you know, what I always found interesting about your all's work, and I think one of the reasons we actually, as an organization, got connected is, you know, Modern Classrooms Project, while we partner with schools and districts to train their teachers, in many ways at the moment, we focus the large majority of our work on like individual classroom redesign, empowering educators in classrooms with our specific model. But, you know, what I've certainly learned about Transcend is you all focus a lot of your energy on really systematic change, right? Like it can be programmatic, it can be school, it can be district level, but it's it, it's a totally different vantage point. Can you share just a little bit more about how you go about this? And like as granular as possible, you can use an example just, but like, well, how do you approach working with a school or a system and how do you kind of figure out what it is that you want to do with them? And then how do you approach it? And how long are those journeys? Yeah, it really varies. One of the things that I love the most about working at Transcend is the community is at the center. And so what we mean by that is we really put the power in their hands to decide if they want to work with us, how, and then customize programming for them. Um, One of my favorite examples of this is a project uh, my team is doing right now called Rural Communities. And we went on a listening tour, tried to understand more about what they needed. And, you know, they elevated challenges around technology, around capacity, that kind of thing. Then we offered a series of workshops around school design, and they got a taste of what it's like to work with us and then decided themselves whether or not they wanted to partner. And this program is fully funded for them. And so, you know, we we give them choice and customize the programming. And then we do two main things. We teach them how to design and iterate. So like I said, each partnership is different, but we'll do things like learn more about what the community needs. So do empathy interviews and collect all of that information or look at the research on science of learning and development and decide what that means for what the vision of the school model could be. We help them build Right. So that might include putting curriculum together. And then we give we, we teach them um, what we would call an R&D muscle. It's basically iteration. And the reason why that's important to us is because the environment, the economy, the population will constantly shift. You know, COVID is a great example of that where something happened. And as a school, you needed to build the muscle to iterate and change. 
The other thing we do is work with folks who already have learning environments and help them codify and share their their learning models. So this becomes a cycle. Those who have a learning model, we codify and share that. And those who want to create one could use, use what we're sharing. You know, and you mentioned this idea of us working at the systems level. We would say... Yeah, we do that starting from the classroom, including the district, because we know that you need to address innovation at multiple angles. So when a school first starts working with us, we ask them to form a design team. And the design team will include someone from the district, the superintendent or an assistant soup, principals, teachers, uh, support staff, learners and families. And we'll ask questions. The full team will get together and throughout their experience with us, we'll ask questions like, What are the outcomes that we want for children? Given these outcomes, what kind of classroom experiences or just experiences should children have? And then given those experiences, what does that mean for staffing, budget, assessments, operations, et cetera? And then once they've laid out that vision, then the group, given their roles, figures out, okay, what what role do I play in bringing this vision to life? And so we know that in order to have sustainable innovation, you have to look at it from all those angles. Families might say, hey, this is how I need to support my learners, or here is how I rally other families to get on board. You know, teachers are often the implementers, teachers and support staff. Superintendents need to release policy constraints (laughs) to be able to make new visions come to life. And so everyone has a role and we have to look at it systemically. I I find that fascinating. And, And three things really jump out at me. I mean, the first thing you said was customization, which, you know, I continue to believe is like the pitfall of education reform over the course of the last however many years, right? This idea that somehow you can create really powerful change without customizing just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, we, we think about customization at the, at the teacher level where like the teacher can customize our model in any way, shape or form that makes sense for their student and their community. And it's great to hear that you all take that same perspective to system design, right? There is not a one size fits all way to redesign a system. It just doesn't functionally make any sense. The other thing I love is iteration, right? Like what I think is so, so important about sustainable change is empowering people to be able to iterate. And I think it connects to customization, right? When you customize something that to make it fit right for a particular community or a need, then you empower them to iterate as well. And I think that that's super powerful. Mm -hmm. That's really, really fascinating. Um, Can you tell folks just a little bit about the general idea of these 10 leaps you all have at Transcend? And you don't need to go through all 10. I will certainly be asking you specifically about two that I think are super tied to the work that we do at the Modern Classrooms Project. But I remember actually the most exciting thing I first noticed about Transcend was I actually read those 10 leaps. Can you talk a little bit about the general kind of idea behind those and how they were crafted? Yeah, you know, oftentimes when you're redesigning, people ask the question, what are we redesigning toward? Like toward what end? (laughs) And we spent a lot of time um, looking across different innovations and understanding like what are the challenges that are creating inequitable situations for our children uh, where they're not achieving at the highest levels that we all want them to be. And the leaps are a representation of what it would mean to get to more equitable learning environments. And so we think if you want to do that, you can focus on certain leaps and figure out like, how do you actually get there? Whether it's, you know, 
more whole child or active self-direction or customization. Um, a big one across our schools right now is social consciousness, right? And part of the challenge we were hearing from our schools is like in our old industrial model of learning, you know, social consciousness is not a thing, right? You're teaching people to do a specific job. And without consideration for how it impacts anyone else, without consideration for their power or other people's power. And this year alone has really put that in the forefront, which is like, there's no way you can continue to do education in the United States without thinking about social consciousness, right? So that's just an example of one of the leaps and how, you know, it relates to getting to more equitable schooling. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, one thing that I think is cool about the leaps and, and even when you think about social consciousness, it's like having the principles is critical and then creating the actionable steps to make it happen is always the really hard part. So it's cool to see that you all then execute on that front because I think we run the risk in, in just education in general of running into a lot of just like innovators and organizations that I think are a little bit on the theory side and on the action side. Mm -hmm. And I think what's nice about the 10 leaps you all lay out at Transcend is they're literal leaps, right? It's like, we're going to change this to this, as opposed to just saying we believe in personalized learning, or just generally believe in social consciousness, which I think is really, really cool. I'm going to kind of, I want to chat a little bit about two of them in particular, because there's, I think, a ton of alignment with the Modern Classrooms Project. The first one I want to talk about is passive compliance being the kind of like baseline sort of where we don't want to be leaping to active self-direction. I find this to be such an important concept in the just shift of teaching and learning to one where we're actually empowering students to be 21st century learners that can be successful beyond the four walls of a classroom or a building. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your all or your personal belief on the importance of shifting from compliant instruction to active self-direction? Sure. You know, the science of learning and development talks about how giving children agency really supports their ability to retain and use and apply information. And active self-direction is one way that that shows up. One of the school examples that you know, launched actually during COVID and is really leaning on this leap of active self-direction is RevX. And so the purpose of RevX is to support communities and enable them to implement rigorous project-based learning. Um, and all throughout last year, we've been doing that virtually. And so what RevX does is provides a structure for the project, right? So kids get a structure, discover, investigate, design, try, uh, reflect, share, that kind of thing. And a set of protocols that facilitators can use and students can learn how to use themselves. So that's the structure that is provided. But where the self-direction comes in is that children elevate the, a challenge in their community and through using that structured process, identify the root cause of the challenge, investigate it, design it, and then develop a, design a solution and then try the solution to address their challenge. And so what this structure and process does is it shifts teachers' role to being a facilitator um, or a provocateur <laughs> in the learning process. They're coaching children um, as they go through this and really helping them develop skills that they don't have but need in order to address their challenge. 
one of the children or work, um, was working on discrimination and ended up pulling a long form Atlantic article. And when she did that, I was like, you know, this third grader. Um, and I'm like, oh man, I know this is past her reading level. But it was so interesting to just watch her really dig into that, ask the teacher to support her in like how to decode a lot of the text and how to make meaning about it. And it was just so different um, to see how she engaged in reading because she had a challenge that she chose that was really important to her. You can't replicate that. <laughs> that happens when children have, when they have agency. And so... Yeah, I'm really inspired by the concept of how do we give enough structure to schools so that they can still be rigorous, but really allow children to take learning on themselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the reasons why I found traditional approaches to teaching that were highly teacher-centered and it's ultimately just like compliance-based is how much we limit student potential in that environment. Like I often talk about when I speak to external stakeholders about the kind of original reason I had built the model alongside my co-founder. And actually the first reason was I would stand at the front of the room and I would deliver a lecture on, you know, quadratic equations. And the first kids whose heads went down were the ones who were bored. And I remember thinking, this is like really bad that my students who are most anxious to learn heads go down first. Like, what does that say about what I'm doing in my classroom? I'm literally like restricting kids from being able to achieve their full potential. And that is like a horrifying reality that needs to be eliminated. Um, and I, th I think about that with the, the third grader you just described, right? Like without providing the structures for that student to take control of their own learning, that student probably wouldn't have accessed something with a grade level that's well beyond, you know, her current reading level and probably wouldn't have sought out the teacher to be able to provide the, the supports and the scaffolds for her to access that. So really thinking about, you know, passive compliant based instruction versus self-direction, it's not just the idea that we're teaching kids to be, you know, capable of goal setting and driving their own work day, essentially. But more than anything, it's actually ensuring that we're not limiting students' potential because when we don't put them in the driver's seat, we decide for them what their potential is ultimately. And I think that that's deeply unfair and inequitable. So I love that example too. I think that's super important. And, and like, how do you all think about scaling a principle like that? So if you're working with a school or a district and you're trying to reinforce the idea of active self-direction, is it usually built around an idea like you just described? So, um, you know, like scaling something like project-based learning that deeply values, obviously, self-direction because there's no way to do a project effectively without having your own voice and, and being in the driver's seat. Is that the primary methodology of, of doing that? Is, is, and, and do you decide that on the front end? Do you decide with the school? Do they ask for it? How does that usually play out? Yeah. So the process that I described earlier regarding design teams creating a vision for their future, that's always the first step mm -hmm. and really understanding the needs of the community. And then once that happens, sometimes, you know, there are already existing models. So if somebody wanted to adopt RevX or adopt one of the other models that exist out there in the world, we would support them in gathering all of that, those materials 
and then auditing those materials against their own culture and budget, you know, staffing model. And so we do some tweaking (laughs) to the things that already exist that they're going to adopt. And then we support them in doing the training and development in order to execute it. Love it. Fascinating. Fascinating. I want to pivot to, I I don't want to say I have favorite leaps, but I kind of do. Um, My second favorite leap, which is this idea of narrow focus to whole child focus. This one's deeply personal to me because I remember being an educator, teaching in an environment where there was just frankly a lot of trauma. And I often talk about the the tension I felt between maintaining control and supporting students with trauma. Because if I'm leading a lecture when the bell rings and a student walks into my classroom experiencing trauma, what exactly do I do? Ultimately, you're going to have to kind of pit two ideas against each other. Do I focus on maintaining control, making sure every kid's in their seat, you know, ready to take notes on this lecture? Or do I go cater to that student's needs? Um, And, you know, that decision is not one any teacher should have to make. And it certainly isn't a position that we should put students in. Ultimately, when a student walks in feeling trauma, the first thing we should all feel the freedom to do is go check in with that student and decide what the next level of support is. Um, So I kind of built the model partially because of that reason, because I started to feel a little sick to my stomach when I was constantly looking at students with trauma and at times almost frustrated by their trauma, which was horrifying, right? It was like, how dare I get frustrated by this student's pain because it's limiting my ability to maintain control in my classroom so I can teach factoring quadratics. So I just kind of want to hear your general perspective on this idea of narrow focus to whole child focus. In particular, can you share a little bit about what you all mean when you think about narrow focus? Like, how does that manifest in schools and buildings now? Yeah, when I think about narrow focus, I think about um, environments that detach academic learning with you know, what I talked about earlier, like your spirit, your culture, your emotions, as if those things don't live together in one human. And they do. And so making the leap to whole child means acknowledging all parts of a person as necessary and important in order to pursue a goal, in order to pursue academic achievement, etc. I think one of the One of the great examples we have of this is Van Ness Elementary School. The example that you gave is one that's about reacting to trauma. What happens at Van Ness is a preventative approach. And um, I'll tell you a story about last time I visited there, what I saw in one of the learners, which I really love, and that will illustrate to you what I mean by preventative. So they have a model, it's called CARE. Van Ness is a pre-K through fifth grade elementary school in Washington, D.C., and their focus is whole child. Um, And this particular part of their model is called CARE, which includes uh, interventions for students, like helping them learn routines. One of the ones that I love is their morning routine, where they come in, they greet each other, they learn different strategies to de-stress, they offer compassion to people who are not in the room or things that are happening in the world. They share how they're feeling. They set a goal for the day. And this all happens in the morning in an effort to recognize that sometimes children are coming to school with trauma. (laughs) 
And this morning routine really helps them to get in what Vanessa would call the exe their executive state, right? Ready to learn. Um, and why this constant morning routine is critical is because of this student. <laughs> the student is a great example. So I'm watching a math class and I see this learner getting agitated, right? And he just gets up and he walks over to an area in the classroom that they call the safe space. He pulls out a card with a strategy for how to de-stress. I see him do the strategy and then he takes a deep breath and then he goes back and joins the class. And when I asked him, hey, what did you just do? And he goes, I needed to self-regulate, <laughs> you know? And this, this is a first grader. And what's neat about that is you've built, the, because of these routines, you've built the capacity in children themselves to address their own emotional needs. And you have the culture in the school that allows them to do that. They can go and get the support that they need and then rejoin. Um, and that way, class isn't actually disrupted because you've built the capacity and the culture already. I love it. And it reminds me, actually, so we have our Edutopia video. The, the larger one features my old classroom and our director of teaching and learning's classroom. But there's actually a shorter one on our social emotional check-in do now. And it, it was inspired off this idea of like, why is the first thing a kid doing in class always have to be academic? In fact, why is it ever like just have to be immediately academic. So sort of similarly to what Van Ness, it sounds like is doing school-wide, what kids do and most, frankly, most modern classroom educators that I've observed and seen in action use this tool, but it's just a social emotional do now. So the first thing kids do is they grab this do now. They indicate how they're feeling. They indicate what exactly they plan to accomplish in the day to just like frame themselves and just create some goals. They also articulate what they're actually going to do to get to that goal. So how are they going to accomplish it? And then can share any other sort of information with their teacher that they think is important. And like you said, there's something so powerful about just allowing kids to pause for a second and just like assess where they're at, not just in its ability to figure out if they need something, but more importantly, that building that routine then teaches kids how to be their own self-regulators, which I love about the story you just described, right? Because at that stage... That first grader, you know, has gotten to a point now where he just knows to self-regulate. I think that's a beautiful concept. It sounds like he's better at it than I am, frankly. <laughs> I think it's super, super cool. So that's amazing. We're going to take a break now. And then after the break, we're going to dig in uh, a little bit on just sort of what's gone on in the last 12 months and where we're going after that. So we're going to take a pause and we'll be right back. Hi, listeners. Zach here again. We've got a great love from our teachers for you this week. This one's from a middle school social studies teacher named Chris Layer. You'll hear him talk about how the model helps him differentiate his content, both for his students who work more quickly and those who work at a slower pace, which, and I always say this, absolutely echoes my own experience with the model. My name is Chris Layer, and I teach 7th and 8th grade social studies in Wellington, Colorado. One thing I love about teaching with the Modern Classrooms model is being able to reach my students who are advanced and who need a challenge, while at the same time reaching my students who need a little bit more background knowledge built up before mastering grade level standards. With the self-paced structure, I spend a lot more time working individually and with small groups, 
I can target those in the moment scaffolds during the instructional video or during the self-paced activity so that students are ready to demonstrate grade level mastery and building in those aspire to do lessons within the same structure and within the same routine allows advanced students to dive deeper into key concepts or extend their learning to different contexts. Uh, and also the clarity and structure of using progress trackers has worked wonders for a lot of my students. The agenda, the learning target, the success criteria are always clear, which allows them to know when they've mastered the concepts and skills they need and when they're ready to take that next step. This kind of differentiation really feels authentic to me. And you can learn more about how teachers like Chris and myself use the model by checking out our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org, a link you'll find down in the show notes. Now let's get back into it with Kareem and Jen. All right, and we are going to bring it back in, and Jen and I are now going to pivot a little bit, I mean, not entirely, but a little bit away from sort of our our work and your work at Transcend, Jen, and our work at Modern Classrooms, and talk a little bit about the moment and just kind of what has transpired. So obviously, a lot has gone on in the last 12 months, a lot of trauma and a lot of really kind of crazy realities for schools, districts, teachers, families, students, and everything in between. Can you talk a little bit about what you feel like you all have learned over the last 12 months that will inform how you or Transcend will do your work moving forward? Yeah, I feel like one of my biggest learnings has been that the iteration muscle is actually really valuable. And I remember leading a school myself and really feeling like, oh, it takes a really long time to go through a change management process, right? Like if we're going to take in a new curriculum or something else, you know, this is a two-year endeavor. And what I've noticed is that the schools that have been working with Transcend for a long time, um, one of our partners in particular, Edgecombe County, who really built this iteration muscle that I was talking about earlier, really pivoted quickly when COVID happened. And so in the span of four years prior to COVID, they had several iterations, probably upwards of 10 plus iterations of their model, and they'd learn how to be agile. And then they needed to switch to remote learning. They already had a set of working groups in place to have discussions about changes and improvements. Um, They already had communication systems in place with parents in order to always let them know about the new things that are going on in the building. And so the shift felt more seamless for them. And so it just makes me reinvigorated about the concept of building that iteration muscle for more communities around the country. Yeah, you know, I I think in many ways it was an indictment on how inflexible most systems are. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it was just shocking kind of in some circumstances to just think about how just fundamentally inflexible most structures of learning were so that when suddenly things were remote, I mean, it was just not, nothing was moving really. Um, And as you said, right, communities that are used to being flexible, which at its core, I think, speaks to the idea of a desire to build responsive learning environments, right? That like, don't just like create a structure and say, you have to respond to us, but instead say, actually, we respond to the needs of the community and what's going on, whether it's data driven or not. Um, And I think that's a powerful kind of idea. And you can tell when a school community is or is not a responsive one. And the ones that were responsive were able to move fairly quickly. Um, So I think that's a really, really interesting concept. I also found that over the last 12 months, 
folks started to really see what doesn't work. You know, it was just kind of put on blast. I always use the example of just like a traditional live lecture, like just how weird it is to do that on Zoom, right? Like you just, you can't talk on Zoom for 40 minutes and expect to see engagement. It just doesn't work. So I think that's been a really powerful kind of element of the last 12 months. Are there any other elements of sort of teaching and learning that you all feel like got exposed or that you learned about or or that you saw to be uniquely valuable over the last 12 months? I think the concept that you just brought up of not really being able to do lectures <laughs> in ways, in the ways that you might in in-person classroom, because kids will veer off and start playing Roblox <laughs> and other games and really tune out or turn their video screens off. And so it really forced teachers to think about what's your role as a teacher and seeing the shift to allowing children to either find content on their own or having teachers pre-record content and then using the space, the virtual space when they were together to actually workshop things and be in small groups. That to me has been fascinating. And I've had teachers tell me like, oh, this is making me think about what I could be doing in the classroom differently. And so that part has been good. Also, this idea of making what happens in a school visible. Mm -hmm. So we had several schools where families were like, oh, is this what my child is doing? And then started participating more and giving their opinion about like how they wanted teaching and learning to go, right? And so we saw an uptick in schools surveying parents, like what time should learning happen? <laughs> how long should it be? All of those things, because they had more opinions and schools were forced to listen in ways that maybe they might not have before. And so I think it's really opened up this um, relationship between families and schools and making that way more bi-directional than it has ever been. You know, what I think is really interesting about that, that I think is not talked about enough, is the connection, too, with creating healthy accountability. Because mm -hmm. I hated when I was a teacher being told I had to submit like some sort of lesson plan. Because almost every time it wasn't actually what I was using to plan what I was doing in the classroom. So that's the thing that drove me nuts about it, is I was being told to sort of create something that I personally wasn't actually using in the classroom. And one of the things I love about the modern classrooms model is... When you build an effective learning environment that's accessible everywhere, anywhere, anytime, which I know is essentially one of the other leaps you all have, well, that's your accountability tool. Like you can just see the learning. The kids are accessing it. A parent can access it. An admin can access it. So I think that concept's really powerful. I think it's one of the things that will certainly travel with us post COVID is this idea that, you know, we want to create accessible learning experiences. It's deeply inequitable to say, hey, just because you missed the live anything, you no longer can have as rich of a learning experience. But through that, we create healthy accountability, which I am personally optimistic about myself. Agreed. Agreed. So what about your concerns? I mean, what are you worried about as we transition out of quote unquote pandemic schooling to post pandemic schooling? What is like kind of I mean, I hate to say it this way, but like sending chills down your spine or making you really uncomfortable about kind of the future. Mm -hmm. This concept of the inertia of the old system <laughs> really keeps me up at night 
meaning I'm afraid that folks will forget that they could be innovative and agile, integrate technology, create unique staffing structures. They just spent a year doing all of those things. And I'm afraid that when they come back into the building, they'll just go back to the way things were. So like a good example is I was having a conversation last week and, you know, I made the comment that, look, anytime, anywhere learning is here to stay. And, you know, the conversation really questioned this concept of whether or not school districts could actually continue to offer online, online schooling, even when they went back in person. And I was like, no, 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 we've already, like, we've gotten here. You're doing it. Keep it. And then think about how do you optimize learning having these different modalities coexist? You know, this is such an interesting concept. I mean, I too am a little worried about the inertia of the traditional system. Although the reason why I'm not, I think, as worried as, as others is I think the most important accountability metric is students. And I just think students are going to be mad if they go back to a traditional system. Like the things that they have been able to do that are positive during this past 12 months, they're going to request, like if they've been able to access a learning management system where they can see all the content and then suddenly they can't, they're going to be like, why can't I see the content anymore? Yes. And I, you know, this speaks a little bit to what we've seen with our modern classroom students, because if you're a modern classroom teacher in a school and your students really like the way they were learning, and then they maybe go to another class or go to a different school building and they're not learning that way, they're the biggest advocates. They'll be like, why can't I learn in a more self-paced environment? Why do I have to sit through lectures that I'm not finding particularly engaging? So I'm super hopeful that the kids ultimately will be the loudest advocates and obviously the families themselves. Um, and you know, hopefully that'll work. Although I might be too optimistic because obviously I think history has told us that um, the inertia of the traditional system is pretty powerful. Um, but we will see. You know, one thing I am deeply worried about is the undervaluing of how much whole child support is necessary. I just like, frankly, I'm getting really exhausted by how many just like posts I'm seeing and news bits I'm seeing that are so fixated on quote unquote learning loss. Oh, yes. <laughs> and if we show up to schools and that's our number one priority and we forget the fact that trauma has just like enveloped families and kids and we are just in this like diagnostic test them, figure out where they're at. We got to catch it up. Like, let's keep it moving. That's not going to work. Like anyone who's been an educator, a principal, a school leader knows like the social emotional health of kids are not just the most important reality. They're a prerequisite to mastering academic content. So I'm just like deeply concerned about that being a focal point that or frankly, of that not being a focal point and that learning loss essentially takes up so much space that we forget about the level of trauma students and families have experienced. Yeah. Have you ever experienced a, a lot of stress and then realized like your brain is basically not functioning? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Your brain's like mush. Exactly. And I, I hope that folks remember that because everyone has experienced it. And for many children, that will be the thing. And so if we don't address the whole child, kids will be, children will be under 
they will be under so much stress that they cannot retain and take in and use information. And we know from the science of learning that, you know, you really have to be able to reduce that stress for children in order for them to access information. So I agree with you. That is a worry of mine, but I hope folks don't forget. Similarly, I think people haven't realized how much the educators, you know, whole self is important. One of our partners, Valor, has always done a really great job of doing social and emotional learning for their educators as well. And I think that's even more important now because not only have children experienced trauma, but the adults in their lives have too. Not only with what's going on in the world and health-wise with COVID, but also having to go through all these shifts and changes and the uncertainty, and they are responsible for the education of thousands of children. So we have to tend to the adults as well. Well, and teachers, I mean, particularly great teachers are, are really difficult on themselves. Like they're just so hard on themselves. Yeah. And one thing I think is going to be really important is just keeping measured expectations. You know, I, I always say, like, I think the model we've created when executed really, really well is one of the best models out there at effectively differentiating instruction. That doesn't mean it's not incredibly difficult to support an eighth grade student who essentially fell off the map for 12 months sitting next to a student who was thriving over the last 12 months. Yeah, I don't actually have a great solution for that. I think the modern classrooms model will certainly help. But we have to keep measured expectations. And I do worry, you know, kind of in conjunction with the learning loss ideas, you know, you can create these conditions that essentially make teachers feel like there's no way for me to succeed. Like I'm always underperforming or I'm never going to feel successful. And if the circumstances and the diversity of academic and social emotional needs are wider than we've ever seen before, which seems to be, I think, a fair assumption to make, that is going to make educators feel at times like they're not as successful as they used to be because it's just a harder set of circumstances. So I totally agree. I think we, we're going to need to give educators a ton of grace. And it's going to be important for educators themselves too, to just keep keep in mind that they should have re- reasonable expectations. And I'm hopeful they will. Um, but I certainly knew what it was like to constantly feel like I wasn't doing it right and then not knowing where to go as a result. So that that should be an interesting progression. And you know, I'm, I'm hopeful. And by the way, when you were talking about this idea of like trying to learn when you're stressed, I often used to talk about this idea of the fact that students in traditional environments that are quote unquote testing multiple grade levels behind are essentially in just like a perpetual state of feeling rushed. And I would see this so often in math. I mean, it's amazing how often kids are just like, I hate math. And I realized the reason they hate math is because they have never not been rushed through a skill. Like they have no recollection of traveling through a skill and having enough time to actually master it. It's the same idea, like the constant pressure, anxiety. It's just impossible to learn that way. So, you know, I'm hopeful we won't put kids in that position, but I think it's a a real challenge. Agreed. What are you uh, most optimistic about? I think you spoke a little bit to this a few minutes ago, but just in general, I mean, what, if you could kind of like synthesize that, what is the idea concept you're most optimistic about moving forward? Oh, so much. (laughs) Um, That's great. This transparency uh, between families and schools. I am optimistic about that because I think families will ask for the things that they need. Similarly, you know, we've been seeing also with RevX, children are like, hey, why can't we just do this for our entire school day? (laughs) Like, what's the problem? (laughs) And I think their request for that will you know, inspire educators to rise to the occasion. 
um, and school systems to also rise to the occasion. You know, I think that is a super interesting concept. One of the things, too, that I'm most excited about is, I mean, in your experience, do you feel like educators and, and systems are becoming exponentially more fluent in technology and the capacity to navigate different elements of technology? I hope so. <laughs> I, I've seen it happen to various degrees. But I, you know who inspires me, actually, in this regard? Teachers yep. who have just like really dug in and learned new platforms and how to integrate things, what works and what doesn't work. A teacher I was working with last week had an entire, you know, experience laid out on a jam board for children as they were going to do in-person interviews with other kids on a playground. And I'm just like, whoa, that's super cool, you know? And I'm I'm inspired by those teachers. I mean, what we're seeing at the Modern Classrooms Project is just this extraordinary level of innovation at the teacher level. I mean, it's just like crazy. I mean, we learn more every day about different ways to do our model from our teachers, yeah. from the 25,000 teachers in the free course, from the 1,200 teachers we're training this summer. I mean, these folks are all just like literally every day we're seeing a new level of implementation. I was teaching to, talking to a teacher just last week, actually, who is a PE teacher in Belgium doing our model and the way that she uses space with technology and her iPads. I mean, it's just like so fascinating. So the reason why I'm optimistic is because I actually think we're in this really interesting sort of turning point where teachers are super fluent with technology and super fluent in understanding when technology is valuable and, and reinforces and, and actually supports human connection and when it doesn't. And then simultaneously, super aware of where the traditional system has failed in a multitude of ways. So I actually think it's like the perfect time for continued innovation, which is why I'm a little bit less concerned about sort of the regression back to the traditional. But ultimately, the traditional model is convenient. Um, and that's the piece that we have to be careful about is kind of regressing to convenient practices. But I'm most optimistic about that. Well, Jen, as we close out, uh, first of all, fantastic just conversation. I had a joy chatting about these concepts with you and learning about Transcend more um, and the different approaches you all take at really creating innovation. I think it's super inspiring work. I want to give you the space uh, to just share a little bit about how listeners can access any of your work at Transcend and any opportunities that might be available to folks. Um, just go ahead and share anything with the listeners that you please about your work in Transcend. Sure. Uh, folks can reach Transcend on our website, at transcendeducation.org. And when you get there, you can click on the button that says community. There are a list of events and upcoming webinars. On our website too, you could see our different partners. Some of the ones that I've mentioned, Van Ness Elementary School, uh, Edgecombe County, Valor, RevX. Uh, RevX in particular has a vibrant Instagram page and you can reach RevX at, at RevXEDU on Instagram. And then for social media for Transcend, you can reach us at at Transcend Builds with an S plural. Love it. Thanks so much, Jen. Um, we'll make sure all of that is in the show notes, of course. And folks listening, you all know where you can find the work of the Modern Classrooms Project. It's www.modernclassrooms.org, free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. And our social media tag is at Modern Class Proj. Jen, wonderful chatting with you. I am su I'm more optimistic myself leaving this conversation, having chatted with you and continue to be in awe of the work that Transcend does. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This was fun. Awesome. Have a good one. 
Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.